Hello, welcome to the Heme Sapien podcast where diverse perspectives in healthcare converge. My name is Min. And my name is Hana, and today we will be talking to Aneri Patel, another student at UCLA, and we'll be discussing the economics behind America's healthcare system. Yeah, so thank you so much, Aneri, for joining us today. Could you first off just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, my name is Aneri. I am a third year business economics major with a minor in entrepreneurship. I've been interested in the healthcare system for a very long time. I wrote my um, admissions essay to get into UCLA on the healthcare system and how I think some economics principles can like help fix it. So I feel like this is a really full circle moment to be on this podcast. Uh, over the summer, I wrote an article on Medium about America's ailing healthcare system and some ways that we can fix it, both on like a broader economic level, but also um, how tech innovation can be a part of it as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to kind of dig into some of the topics that we have for today. Awesome. Okay. So about your article, you talked a lot about how um, our response as a to COVID showed how difficult it really was for our healthcare system to respond quickly. And one of the things you highlighted was about um, how uh, we have middlemen. And you also talked a lot about an increasing monopoly of industry. So did you want to expand on those two things possibly? Yeah, I'd love to. So this kind of ties into what about like why America's healthcare system is so expen uh, expensive overall. So the first thing I'd like to bring up is middlemen. So compared to other countries' healthcare systems, uh, both developing and developed nations, we have a lot of middlemen. Um, probably the most infamous case is pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs who are supposed to keep drug spending in control by establishing bulk discounts for pharmaceutical companies. But instead of what it's doing is that there's a lack of transparency in their deals with, with companies and insurance firm uh, and insurance companies as well. The result of that is that we have really huge uh, prices for drugs on our end that, as con consumers that other countries don't have. And we also don't know, like, where is that price inflation? Like, what is that money going to? And a lot of experts believe that it's going, you know, into the pockets of, the, of these PBMs. So that, that's one way. Uh, the second thing is that there's a lot of monopolization in the industry. In the past 10 years, you see these big hospital systems buying up smaller mom and pop, like physicians, um, outlets, and offices. And because of that, in a certain region, you'll have like a lar large monopoly of a healthcare system. The reason that this becomes problematic is because under our private insurance system, if insurance company is meeting with the hospital and they're like, okay, how much does your um, lung cancer treatment cost? They'll, the hospital will shoot out a price and the insurance companies basically have to go with that price that they've suggested because there's no other provider in the area that also does like these big treatments. And so, and insurance companies all, often, they need, treatments for like a wide variety of diseases that people can have. And so they can't just be like, oh, it's okay. We won't, we won't cover it under our plan because they need to cover it for their, um, for their constituents or people that pay for that insurance plan. So that has been largely problematic as well, not only on a hospital level or like a specialized treatment level, but also if you're going down to, you know, your primary care provider, there is, oftentimes a lack of 
supply of these doctors. And so they are able to charge really exorbitant prices um, to their, to their um, patients. And that is like another problem that needs to be fixed. Some people blame it on the like med school industry and how they try to keep supply of doctors low so that once you graduate, you get like a really, really great salary as a doctor. And so that's kind of why, I don't know if any of you are, are pre-med, but that that's like the perk of why everyone wants to go into medicine. Well, to help people for sure, but also because of the salary. Um, but that that lack of supply can also end up hurting the, the patient who has to pay for it on the other end. Yeah, thank you for that. I feel like you definitely brought up a lot of great points. And I feel like definitely the cost of medical treatment and like pharmaceuticals and like insurance is one of like the biggest barriers for a lot of people and like obtaining um, healthcare. Could you maybe talk a little bit about some of like the economic principles behind like universal healthcare and like whether or not something like that is feasible in the US? Yeah, definitely. So it, it comes down to a very simple, I won't even go into supply and demand. It's more just like market um, bargaining power. So in any negotiation, one person will have more power in determining prices um, than the other person in the in the transaction, right? So um, going back to that example of insurance companies and big hospital systems, the reason why Medicare um, or a health insurance plan, universal health coverage um, can stop those exorbitant prices is because if you are like a mega insurance plan, right, that's serving millions and millions of people in the United States, instead of hospitals determining the price, you can say, no, like we want only, we want this treatment to only be um, 5K, for example, like take it or leave it, right? And so, um, and that's kind of how hospitals would be required to kind of push down on their prices. And so that's kind of the basic premise behind how universal healthcare can, can decrease some of those costs is that instead of um, the suppliers of the healthcare, right, it's pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, just smaller physicians, instead that comes to like a bigger government player that theoretically is supposed to have the interests of the public in mind. And that's kind of the fundamentals. The downside that people obviously bring up with universal healthcare coverage is the quality of care, right? If right now, let's say there's 30 million people in the United States that aren't insured. If we add 30 more million people into that system, that is gonna cause a drag on the system that currently is not there. Not saying that um, like that's a problem, right? We just need to build out our infrastructure for that because everyone should have access to healthcare. Um, but if you look at other countries like the UK, for example, that have a universal healthcare system, it works out great for like a primary care physician um, appointment or, you know, something that's not specialized. But when you get to those specialized um, doctors, then you have like months long wait time. And that's kind of where the US in their private system beats out the UK um, and under their universal system. That being said, <laughs> there are a lot of countries that have private um, systems in um, similar to the US in Western Europe. So examples I like to bring up are like France or Germany. Um, both of those have a private network, but what the government does, which is super interesting, 
um, and kind of falls under like the free market philosophy that you learn in econ at UCLA is um, it's like free market, but the government one takes a really active role. So they will subsidize or provide stamps to people that can't pay for the private insurance um, costs. So they'll, they have really, really high like um, universal, like they almost universal coverage through a private healthcare system. Um, and also their prices for, for drugs and for treatments are really low because the government takes an active role in negotiating with these entities so that their citizens don't have to pay exorbitant prices, which the US currently like takes a step back and is like very free market laissez-faire about everything and um, says like the prices will be the prices and under a perfect, perfectly competitive market, right? The prices should be where they're supposed to be. The problem, as I mentioned before, is that it's not a perfectly competitive market. Yeah, that's super interesting. I was actually gonna ask, you kind of mentioned something about quality of care. So what would be some good metrics for that? I know you mentioned like wait times, you know, to measure quality of care. And I know in your article, you actually talked about um, focusing on pre preventative care. Would that also be considered a good metric for um, the quality of health insurance? Yeah, so um, generally there's like uh, overall coverage of like of a country, right? So like how many people have health insurance, one, and then two, how many people have health insurance where going to a healthcare appointment wouldn't take up more than a certain threshold of their disposable income. So that's kind of a way that economists try to measure how good a healthcare system is. But there are so many other metrics that you can look like uh, look at, um, like prevalence of chronic diseases, how often people are going to the doctor's office. Yeah, wait times is a great one. How often, doc like how long doctors actually spend talking to you. Um, sometimes doctors, I don't know if on our menu felt this, but like you go to a doctor's office and they spend like two minutes with you. And like, yeah, and that's it. Experience that, yeah. And you're like with the nurse the whole time aside from that, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, I want you to listen to me and listen to kind of what I'm going through so you can get a good understanding. So hopefully there's not a misdiagnosis or something like that, right? So um, that's a personal one that I find really important because I've had doctors that haven't listened to me and I've had to go in like 10 times, like like a ridiculous amount just to diagnose a, a problem. So um, that's another one I like to think of as well. Yeah, those are great. I honestly totally agree with that. Going back to, you know, the whole preventative care also being a metric, how would, um, you know, reducing our spending on things like, you know, care for chronic illnesses like diabetes, like you mentioned in your article, how would shifting spending to preventative care affect our health insurance or our economy? Yeah, so um, when it comes to just diabetes, for example, America spends more than $327 billion each year to manage it. Um, and these are people and these are cases where the diabetes could have been slightly mitigated by eating like healthier foods, for example. And so the whole system right now is based on responsive care. You get sick and you go to a doctor. But if you had more like preventative consultations or digital health services that like, you know, track your um, how many steps you're walking, like what you're eating and stuff like that, how much you're sleeping, that could be really important into kind of decreasing the overall strain that chronic disease causes on the American healthcare system. There are a few interesting innovations around that. So like digital health companies focusing on preventative health is one, but the second thing is 
um, subscription-based like healthcare. Uh, so that's basically like a net, like you think of like a Netflix subscription where you pay a fixed cost and you get um, a certain amount of movies to watch. It would be like that where you pay a fixed cost and you are allowed to go to a doctor's office a certain amount of times. What what's happens um, at the doctor's office doesn't impact that price that you're you're paying overall. This only works in like a limited set of situations. Obviously, like if you have like a a flu or like not not for something serious, like if you had cancer or something like that. But um, what this does is it incentivizes doctors to prioritize the preventative aspects. So these consultations usually last longer than a normal doctor appointment. That's like under that falls under responsive care. They focus more on stuff like your nutrition and how much you're sleeping and stress, like mental health, stuff like that, which I think is super interesting. Like I wouldn't mind personally going to a doctor's office once a month if they were like basically doing a full body checkup. That's kind of just my my take on that. But, but yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. Um, would you consider that like a patient centric solution or could you possibly like define what a patient centric solution would be? Because I know you mentioned that as well. Yeah. So patient centric solutions overall is solutions in the healthcare space specific. It could be like the overall structure of it or like economic models or government programs or like tech companies, for example, but they really focus on like maximizing a patient patient's health um, in a way where patients feel like in control of their healthcare um, system, their payments, and where everything is like affordable and relatively efficient, right? So to provide the best experience possible to the patient. Yeah, and I know like earlier this year, um, we were kind of talking, and you brought up the idea of um, a startup you were working on about improving like patient and doctor relationships. Do you want to maybe? <laughs> Um, talk a little bit about that. Yes, I would love to. Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, so um, me and my co-founder, Naharika, we're two UCLA students. She's um, stats, biz econ, I'm biz econ in entrepreneurship. We're working on a, co- uh, on a company which was recently accepted into startup labs called Medicine. Uh, medicine is spelled with a S-Y-N at the end, like community. The whole goal of it is more to improve health outcomes and reduce bias for minorities in healthcare. So it's a little bit different, but the overall goal is so that um, people can filter through, first of all, people can review their doctors. So um, that equalizes the playing field a little bit where, you know, right now it's mostly word of mouth, but if you move into a new town or, you know, maybe none of your friends have gone to a doctor yet, you need to find some way to like find a good doctor that respects you and is efficient on some of these time things that I mentioned, like like wait waiting time and stuff like that. So it's basically like a review like platform similar to Yelp, but for doctors specifically. And you're able to filter through doctors and filter through reviews um, based on like cultural factors. Like, are they an immigrant? What's their gender identity? What's their like racial or cultural profile? So for example, if I wanted to find a therapist that was an Indian female, for example, then I would be able to find one. And the, our go-to-market strategy for that is to focus on like OBGYNs and also therapists because those are two fields of, of health that are very dependent on some of these cultural factors as well. But the overall goal is to just you know bring more transparency, have doctors compete with each other so that they have to really up their services, right? Like in any other profession, for the most part, you have 
monthly check-ins with your boss or something, something that's controlling you and making sure that you are performing to a standard that's acceptable, right? But for doctors, you don't really see those hidden interactions where there might have been a biased incident, but like there's no one you can really, I don't know, report it too easily, right? So this is a way to kind of disseminate knowledge to the public so that um, doctors can be held accountable for their actions. That's amazing. That's honestly so cool. I've had so many friends actually talk about how they've like really struggled, specifically Hamish and therapists, like really struggled to find therapists that they can relate to that, like understand them on like a personal level. Like, like you said, like, you know, like if you're the child of immigrants, maybe like you would have like a better relationship with a therapist who could understand that, you know, from their own personal background. That's, that's so cool. I love that. That's awesome. Another thing that I was really interested in talking to you about is because of like basically everything your article talks about, about how our healthcare system is in need of a revamping, basically. Um, a lot of people rely on things like GoFundMe or like similar websites like CrowdRise, you know, to fundraise um, and basically pay for life-saving medical treatments and it's crazy that we rely we have to rely on our communities now because it's just so incredibly inaccessible and I feel like your startup would honestly slowly but surely eliminate the need for things like that and I love that that's so cool that's so awesome yeah I know the whole crowdfunding thing to like receive medical treatment is really really crazy and a lot of it is attributed right to the, the high costs of these treatments. Han, are you um, pre-med by any chance or you're just interested? I'm in kind of in between. I'm okay. a policy major, but I'm super interested in becoming a PA. So I'd say okay, okay. in between, yeah. Yeah, so like how would you feel, for example, like if you denied treatment to someone because they couldn't pay for it? I, I've never actually, I mean, you're not a doctor yet. So I don't know if I can like, if you can speak to that. I've never asked that to a physician, but I've always like wanted to, to know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure so many of us who are like listening as well can agree like that sounds horrible. The like turning someone down because they can't pay for a life-saving treatment. Like anytime I'm on Twitter or Instagram and I come across someone asking for help to pay for like their parents like life-saving diabetes medicine or like cancer treatment, you know, it's just like it's insane to me that, you know, we see hospitals just turning people down and being like, no, we can't treat you. Like, if you don't have the means, we can't treat you. And it's so crazy because, like, I was talking about this the other day. Sorry, kind of going off on a tangent, but um, it's crazy because, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, we're all like, like you said, like, one of the perks of, like, becoming a physician is, like, to make money, right? I mean, that is a perk, obviously, to help people, of course, but, like, the salary is, like, a big thing as well. And I feel like, you know, it's kind of crazy because the ends is kind of become like the ends is, has always been the means like you need money, you know, for the means. So you need money to like treat yourself and like, you know, to help your loved ones or whatever the heck, you know? And so it's so insane to me that we have just hospitals turning people down because they can't afford treatment. It's so crazy. It's, it's really sad, but I think what's amazing is like seeing communities rally and come together and like fundraise like thousands of dollars overnight literally overnight to save people. I think that's so incredible, but yeah, yeah. I, I think co- I couldn't turn someone down. What about you, Min? Like, how would you respond to that? Like having to turn someone down? I mean, I definitely agree. I would feel horrible. I feel like I would do everything in my power to like give that treatment to them, like either help them like fundraise or find some other path because I don't know, like it's someone's life and like 
if it's something just like about money like that's super sad but like that's kind of like the world we live in but yeah I don't know I was definitely also thinking about, about that and how like I think Anair you were just about to mention that before um we kind of cut you off <laughs> but you know like with COVID and how like it's kind of like exacerbated um a lot of like disparities in like minority communities um I was just reading an article about how you know like LA was like the epicenter over the winter and like surges were horrible but like in wealthier neighborhoods like Beverly Hills and Malibu they had like way way less surges and like way less deaths compared to like other areas like South Central LA, East LA, things like that. Yeah and I think COVID has like on, on top to like what minorities are facing right now with with COVID the COVID overall has just shown like the strain on the medical system like God bless to all of the doctors and nurses who are working like 24 seven um, in these like ER units and COVID wards um, because like we've tried to keep the supply of like medicine overall, like not so low, but, but lower than maybe what we should be at. And that really starts to show during pandemics, which is of course unprecedented and no one could have, could have ima imagined that it would occur. Yeah, you definitely start to see like what the cost is in human lives of having a, of a healthcare system that hasn't isn't made for everyone first of all and then also is just so inaccessible for a large percentage of the population yeah and i think kind of to continue on that topic of like covid i think something i've heard a lot about on the news is how like you know the us just passed like 500,000 deaths and like how that many people dying in our population has like a huge impact on our economy and there's a lot of talk of like you know how is our economy gonna recover um when is it gonna recover by like could you maybe talk a little bit about that because I feel like I don't have a like a really great understanding of like how that all works yeah okay I'm no macroeconomic expert so you might have to cut parts of this out but I can try my best to explain it so um Okay, so the first, I think there's a few things with COVID that's a little bit concerning. And I've talked about this in my econ classes with like people that have PhDs in investments and stock market and stuff like that. And they don't understand what's happening either. Okay, so the first thing is that so workforce wise, yeah, we have a huge number of deaths. That being said, the majority of people that did um, pass away were beyond like the, their productive peak productive age, which I hate saying, it's like the super economics, <laughs> economists of me to say, because of that, like we haven't seen like a huge lack of supply in people that can work and, and produce goods and services for our country. So that's kind of an interesting way that maybe this pandemic panned out compared to other pandemics in the past or in other countries where like huge percentages of like a younger population were, were taken ill. The next thing is unemployment. So there is, so some employment, unemployment is healthy actually, which is like the first thing they teach you in macroeconomics. The reason why you need some level of unemployment is because if everyone was employed, then like prices for, for goods and stuff would be exponential for like a lot of the common goods that, that we need. Like the reason they are low is because of just like labor economics as a whole, right? So if you have, um, someone that wants a higher wage and then can't and then you know goes to the boss's office and is like I want a higher wage and then like the classic story is like oh well there's someone else outside that's willing to take your job for that price um which is kind of the whole idea of like minimum 
wage theory and is an like a thing that's brought up a lot. So we were actually before COVID, we were at a very low level of unemployment, which our past president Trump liked to talk about a lot. But we were actually lower than the average, which I think is 5%. I'm not sure. Yeah, so average rate of unemployment is like 3.5% or 4.5%. And then we were standing at around 2% for a really long time. What we have now is obscene. Like that is crazy. <laughs> it went like in com- the completely wrong direction. And that level of unemployment definitely like harms so many people in their in their lives and being able to pay their bills and healthcare as, as one of those bills that they have to pay. So that's like something that's interesting. I think that and then that leads me to the next part of this, which is um, with really high unemployment, you should see a fall in the stock market. Like that's what we saw in the Great Depression. That's what you start seeing like slightly during the dot-com bubble and the financial bubble and stuff like that. But the stock market has been kind of flying off the charts. Like you hear stories like Bitcoin and Tesla and stuff like that. And that's something that's just been like unexplained, really. It's kind of like, and and the way that a lot of people have been thinking about it is that the people that do have money to invest and stuff have continued investing while the people that don't really have the disposable income to put in the stock market or other investment securities kind of have been left out of all of this market growth. So it kind of just perpetuates like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer kind of ideology. So that's been interesting. And like, I'm in an investments class right now. Um, and it's, and we like look at past historical trends and stuff. And then what's happening right now is just definitely unprecedented and kind of weird to look at, which makes a lot of people think that like we are in a, a bubble stock, stock market wise. But it, it's kind of created a sense of calm, like in, in a lot of communities, like at least you know that you know, your entire wealth that you've invested isn't about to like go to zero um, during this crazy time. So pros and cons <laughs> there. And then the very last thing that I want to mention is um, all of the relief bills that have been passed for COVID and like trillions and trillions of dollar in debt that we as the next you know generation are going to have to pay off for our country. And the reason why the U.S. is able to like put us in trillions of dollars debt borrowing from other countries is because we are considered like a world leader. Um, And so we've been taking advantage of that market position basically to say like, oh, don't worry, like we'll be able to pay it back. (laughs) But there's, it's so much money that it's kind of ridiculous to even think that we would be able to, you know, pay that back. And I think our generation really feels it. Like they, I think during like Trump's election and also Obama's re-election, they talked about national debt a lot. And then during this past one, they didn't talk about it as much because of, of COVID and everything that was going around with it. But <laughs> the previ- the generations right now that are in office and um, are like 30 and over are kind of it's like screwing us over. <laughs> um, and that's and this is a little bit of a tangent, so that's kind of why like this whole like GameStop Reddit hype and stuff that happened with the stock market like a lot of that was just grudges against the institution for kind of screwing us over like again and again not just not just financially but also like with climate change um and other stuff as well so no yeah that's super interesting because I was actually just about to ask you but you mentioned at your very last point I was going to ask about the long-term effects of 
all of the relief bills that have been passed. And it's also interesting. What was the last point you made? Sorry, I like lost. Oh, like future future generations kind of screwing us over. Oh, yeah, that I was going to say, like, we see that so much in regards to literally everything, you know, like we have people in Congress and obviously like Supreme Court justices, things like that, that serve like the Supreme Court justices, they serve like for their whole life, the remainder of their life, you know, and they're making really important decisions that they won't be around to see like the aftermath of or the consequences of. And so I think that's a super important point that you mentioned because we're seeing a lot of that and they're just not going to be around to deal with what's going on. But yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, politics and economics both share that thing where people prioritize now versus the future to the bane of the future's existence, really. It kind of sucks, but that's kind of why it's so important for our generation to speak up and take leadership roles. And, you know, people might think it's like really small when you take a leadership role, like at a university or stuff, but that kind of just perpetuates into becoming like an industry leader um, or hopefully being like a voice for change in whatever you decide to pursue, right? It doesn't have to be business or health. It could be anything and start making some of those important decisions that really invest in the future of our country and our world. Yeah. And kind of going off of that, I think me and Neri have kind of talked about this, like outside of this podcast, like just as friends and like me and Hannah were kind of briefly touch upon this, like before recording this podcast, the importance of being like interdisciplinary, like Anir, you've talked about how, like, I think you had a mentor who was like, oh, just go into business and like get into a top company and like make money. But you're like, no, like I want to contribute to a company that is doing something meaningful and is like making an impact. Right. And then me and Hannah were talking about how, like, there's so many people going into medicine or STEM who are just like so focused in like science and don't really think about the other impacts that impact like healthcare, like all the things that we just discussed. I guess this is open to like Neri or Hana, like what are your thoughts on that about people who are just cause like so confined into like their specific fields that they forget about all the other stuff that's going on. I feel like being well-rounded especially as like a physician or someone like in healthcare, regardless of your position, um, is super duper important. Because like Neri was saying about like the quality of your healthcare system and having a doctor who runs in for a minute, tells you what's wrong with you and then leaves. And then, you know, something like that, like having people who have, you know, experience in, in other areas and just like having people who are just like able to hold and like make personal connections with other people is super important and I feel like what you said Min it's true because some people are very focused and they're just driven they're passionate you know they, they just want at the end of the day like they want to study medicine right but I feel like what people forget is like when you're going in to see a doctor like the thing that matters the most is compassion and I feel like that matters the most in everything like you really need compassion like when dealing with anyone especially when it comes to your health and like going into the doctor like that's just scary. Like, that's scary. Like, I work as a phlebotomist. So I know when people come in just to get their blood drawn, like, they're extremely scared, right? But like, just having like a little bit of compassion, spending that extra like few minutes, like being like, oh, my God, like, don't worry, like, you know, look away, like, like, do you want me to like play some music, you know, something to make the experience more comfortable is like so important. And that's why I feel like being well rounded, like would really contribute to like a successful career as a physician or, you know, in healthcare. 150 percent like a thousand percent because I so I was going to be like a doctor coming into college like I that was what I wanted to do that's what I thought I wanted to do I wanted to help people um and then I had I had a health scare in high school in which like I went to a lot of different doctor's offices I was taking a lot of pills every single day to try to diagnose my 
condition. It took a year and a half to diagnose it. And across the way, I had doctors that like weren't compassionate, you know, have empathy. And it was literally like scarring for me. Like I get nervous going into doctor's offices now because I think that they won't believe me when I, when I say something. And so that's kind of why, like, first of all, intersectionality in, in healthcare and in across fields is really important. So because of the experiences I had is kind of why I wanted to go into business to make kind of these like more lasting changes or, you know, come up with a digital health company that can mitigate some of the problems that I had in navigating the healthcare system. And so I completely agree with you in that the intersectionality is really important so that you don't get super caught up in like what you're doing, but you can also understand the bigger picture and also build empathy around human decision-making and how humans behave and interact and stuff like that as well. I was just going to say, like, we started talking about how healthcare is so inaccessible, but even for those it's accessible too, the quality is not that great. So that's really interesting to see how our conversation kind of diverged into that. The, the one thing I did want to talk about um, is like digital health companies and technology innovation and entrepreneurship in the space of healthcare. I'm an entrepreneurship minor. I've also been involved in, in tech for a, for a while at UCLA and in high school. And sometimes like these bigger, broader economic changes and like government programs implementation can take years and years. And so what a lot of people in the United States have found is that there's this huge need for products that can improve these health outcomes for individuals and improve quality of care and improve affordability and accessibility. So um, I'll, I can shout out a few companies. So like, so GoodRx is a great one because that transparency in drug pricing, they've kind of been able to overcome. So for those of you that aren't familiar with GoodRx, GoodRx, um, you type in the drug that you need to get um, that your physician, physician tells you about, and then you can look at all the pharmacies in your area, like Rite Aid, Walgreens, CVS, and see which one offers it at the cheapest price, which is great because you could go to your you know, nearest pharmacy and you're paying $20 for a prescription. Um, and at another one, like, you know, maybe three streets over, you can get it for like two bucks <laughs> or something like that, right? So th those are things that people should be aware about. And if you think about like the larger implications of that, what if you were able to compare prices, not only for drugs, but like for, for larger treatments or primary care providers in your area or getting an MRI, like the, the options are really endless. And that's a great way to bring more of the qualities of a perfectly competitive market into the healthcare system. For COVID, especially when institutional, I don't know, healthcare players couldn't really adapt or pivot as quickly, tech was able to. Um, so like Doctor On Demand launched a telehealth COVID assessment tool to triage and treat patients that were at high risk. There's a genomics company called Color, which had fast, accurate, and accessible COVID-19 testing, and they were able to launch it um, in the Bay super, super quickly. There's a company called Consejo Sano, which is telehealth, but with people that don't speak English, right? So like Spanish, for example, um, and they just use their platform to share the critical life-saving information about COVID-19 and like why it's dangerous and what symptoms it has to people that were coming through their website um, that didn't speak English, right? So like these other PSAs and stuff weren't hitting that group of people. So I think that these are like all examples of companies that have 
been able to use their platform and their you know tech skills to the advantage of the public and trying to help fix some of these gaps that COVID had caused. I like how you mentioned, um, I forgot what it was called, but the need for applications or I guess services that um, can help with people who don't speak English because that's like super important. I volunteer at um, a clinic um, and I've honestly seen the effect of having a physician or just like a receptionist who can like speak to you in your native language and just how it like it eases maybe like if you're nervous to go to the doctor you know like it eases that for you and like it just makes it less difficult and like it probably encourages people to go to the doctor more knowing that like when they go they won't have to struggle with communication and like that should be something very basic and that's super cool that they have things like that now I love that well thank you Neri for joining us and answering our questions and letting us I guess dissect your article um is there anything else you'd want to say any last minute things you can go ahead and let us know yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me again. For those of you listening, I'm just an economics student. Haven't taken a lot of, finished taking my classes yet. Certainly not a PhD or an industry expert. So take what I say with, with a grain of salt. Like this is just my experiences in the healthcare system and kind of based around the research that I've done personally. If you're interested in checking out the article that I wrote about America's healthcare system, you can find me on medium it's a nary p also if you want to support the startup that i'm working on you can follow us at on instagram at hello dot medicine so h-e-l-l-o dot uh, m-e-d-i-s-y-n yeah but thank you again so much for having me i really enjoyed talking about economics and healthcare. um and yeah, hopefully I'll know more after I take the actual class on it at UCLA. Thank you so much once again. Really appreciate you answering our questions. So along to our fellow human sapiens, we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>